Welcome to Nathan Out Loud. I'm your host, Nathan Trainer. My pronouns are he, him, his. Samantha Allen is the author of Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States, and Love and Estrogen. She just released an Audible original titled M2WTF, 26 of the Funniest Moments from My Transgender Journey. A glad, award-winning journalist, Samantha's work has been published in the New York Times, CNN, Rolling Stone, and more. Samantha has a PhD in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies from Emory University and received the Kinsey Institute's 2013 John Money Fellowship for Scholars of Sexology. She lives in Washington State with her wife and their hairless cat, Zuma. Here is my interview with Samantha Allen. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Nathan Out Loud, Samantha. We are recording this on October 11th, so I wanted to wish you a very happy General Pulaski Memorial Day. Thank you very much. It is also (laughs) National Coming Out Day. It sure is. So uh, for people who haven't yet heard uh, your Audible original M2WTF, tell us a little bit about what General Pulaski Memorial Day has to do with your story. So M2WTF is kind of a humorous retelling of my gender transition, um, my Mormon upbringing, open heart surgery, a lot of like painful experiences, but told through kind of the lens of comedy. And one of the stories that I tell in the book is about how I came out in my mid-20s and I decided I was I was too good to come out on National Coming Out Day. I was kind of, you know, an annoying little hipster, right? So I had to, I had to, instead of having a National Coming Out Day party, I threw myself a General Pulaski Memorial Day party. Casimir Pulaski is an American Revolutionary War hero. And so uh, he's honored on the same day as National Coming Out Day. And so I, I told all my friends to come over for us to, celebrate Casimir Pulaski. <laughs> That's great. Um, I think we all have, you know, kind of our own coming out story. And that was really the focus behind why I started Nathan Out Loud. Um, kind of, you and I have a similar Mormon upbringing. Um, you know, I think I actually, I was born in Northern California and grew up in Utah. Um, so a lot of what you write about and a lot of what you talk about in M to WTF I can relate to from that aspect. Um, And you recently gave a talk for Affirmation, which is a group for LGBTQ Mormons and ex-Mormons. And, you know, part of watching that, it really struck me, you know, how kind of different we all approach our coming out and how uh, the church impacts it, though. Uh, and I spoke a lot about that in a recent episode uh, and kind of how the church has caused harm to the LGBTQ community. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience, you know, once you realized uh, that you needed to transition, how that, you know, that realization impacted your your faith or your membership in the church? Sure. I mean, you know, growing up, I was taught that, 
you know, that document, the proclamation or the family of proclamation to the world, you know, mm -hmm. that was around our house, like it was around a lot of other Mormon homes. Sorry, my cat is, uh, <laughs> in, in I want to play mode. She's very new. She's, I think, like less than four months old. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so, you know, that that document, I believe, released in 1995, sort of, I think, is a reaction to kind of like the rising visibility of the LGBTQ movement in American culture, or at least LGBTQ life becoming more normalized in American culture. Uh, it says that gender is an essential characteristic of eternal and pre-mortal identity and being or something like that. I'm not quoting it exactly, but it, it essentially teaches you that your gender is fixed forever and it's assigned before you're even born. So that, that kind of squelches any notion that you could maybe be a transgender woman like I am, right? So um, it, you grow up with that kind of ideology and you think, gosh, I can't possibly change who I am. I have to be you know, who I was assigned to be forever. And it takes a while to deprogram from that attitude, especially as you get older and you realize that there are, in fact, you know, policies in the church handbook against medically transitioning. And yeah, it's, it's for how it sort of started interacting with, um, with, uh, <laughs> let me get her, with no my <laughs> Mormon faith. Yeah, I feel that. Oh, there she is. <laughs> um, with, you know, I, I was, became convinced that I was going to hell, you know, because I knew from a very early age that something was going on with my gender, right? Like, uh, stealing my sister's clothes out of her dresser was my first memory. And then around the time that I got serious about Mormonism, which was like 17, I I decided I'm going to put that all away. I'm going to like stop this behavior that I don't really understand and don't really have words for. And, you know, I compared an M to WTF, like it's the telltale heart in Edgar Allan Poe. You can put it away, but thump, thump, it's going to keep coming back and coming back until you, until you address it. And so, um, gosh, it was, you know, I went to BYU. I started my mission. I came home from my mission early for medical reasons and and gosh uh, maybe like six months after that I realized like I can't keep running from this and that sends you down a rabbit hole of of other things and you know you're looking for a way to be like unbound by these rules you think you have to abide by and and that leads you to discover very legitimate and real concerns with um with Mormonism that had been kind of suppressed in my brain anyway. And mm -hmm. it all just kind of crescendoed at once. Yeah. And you pointed out, which I wasn't aware, I didn't serve a mission. Um, I essentially you know, stopped being active in the church around, you know, 16 or 17 when I was old enough to have a job and be able to use that as an excuse to work on Sunday so I wouldn't have to go to church. <laughs> yeah. To, much to my mom's chagrin. Um, you mentioned that in the missionary handbook, there are two uh, people, two types of people that if you start teaching the discussions to, um, you need to discuss it with, you know, 
a higher up in the church. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I remember this in my edition of Preach My Gospel, I, which is the Missionary Mormon Missionary Handbook that's currently in use. I went on my mission in 2006, 2007. I went looking for this recently to see if it was still in, in there, and I don't mm-hmm. think I could find it, but I swear this was in my version of Preach My Gospel where it said, you know, like, you can essentially, like, baptize pretty much anybody with a bishop's interview, but in two cases, you need to kind of escalate things. And one was, you know, people who were, like, convicted murderers, and the other was people who had undergone some sort of transition-related surgery. And so that sets a pretty clear message of what kind of company you're considered to keep if you're transgender. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. And we actually, you and I resigned from the church the same year. Um, I came out in 1999-2000, but then it was the Prop 8 in California, um, you know, that kind of sent me over the edge and made me (laughs) actually send in my letter to resign from the church. and you mentioned that it was a you know huge relief and you know i can attest to the same feeling um you know i think that it it's important to recognize you know kind of what's holding you back uh and i i definitely felt that in terms of the church so um although and you mentioned in that talk that mormons are still my people um what did you mean by that yeah, I'm curious if you if you've started to feel this way too. I mean, you know, for the first five years after I left the church, probably the first seven years after I left the church, I was really angry at the harm that it had caused me, at the way in which it had encouraged me to suppress who I was, delayed my like ability to experience like true happiness and satisfaction in my life. Um, and, you know, I can, I can still be mad about that in, mm-hmm. in times, um, in some kind of cosmic existential sort of way. But, you know, when you accept that there are things in your life that are out of your control, you can start to appreciate like, yeah, you know, I am, um, I grew up in this weird culture that cost me a lot of pain, but there's nothing I can do about having grown up in the weird culture. Like I'm still, I'm still gonna like, you know, know like what it's like to use heck as your go-to swear word, (laughs) have fry sauce at Burger Supreme and Provo. We disagree on very, very hard. Fry sauce (laughs) sauce is not, no. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I was always the one, you know, even after I left the church, when friends just kind of wanted to get together to like, I don't know, like drink and shoot the shit like 20 year olds, 20, you know, 25 year olds do. I was like, well, what activity are we going to do? Are we going to watch a movie? Like, I like, I always wanted to. Yeah. I like, I think. I think I love the emphasis on family and like, you know, activities and then having your time be a little more structured. Um, I just wish it came without all the moral anti-LGBTQ strictures, you know? Yeah. Um, So, and I, you know, thinking about Mormonism and, and that, I, 
personally, I feel like there's a big difference between Utah Mormons and non-Utah Mormons. And you grew up between Southern California and New Jersey. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You went to school in Provo. You've been back to Provo since. Do you get that sense? I mean, the culture is definitely, Mormonism is definitely more of a culture in Utah than it is Mm -hmm. elsewhere. In Southern California, it's kind of like Utah light. It's kind of like, you know, the second Utah outpost, right? The the density of Mormons in Southern California is is pretty high. And Mm -hmm. then New Jersey, it was kind of, what I appreciated about being Mormon in New Jersey was it was kind of like Mormon and exile sort of vibes, you know, not Mm -hmm. very few people were Mormon. Most of my friends were Catholic or Jewish. They, they didn't really understand. They were still under the illusion that Mormons were like currently practicing like polygamy. Um, Mm -hmm. then in Southern California where people had largely gotten the memo that, you know, it was a practice that, slowly died in the 19th century um but in new jersey it it was interesting because you you had people in your congregation or under your ward who weren't necessarily that like like white utah mormon you know or southern california mormon stereotype you had like you know working class people from like the new york city area like in your ward you know alongside people who had moved from southern california and utah and it was this mm-hmm. weird melange of folks and um yeah that the, it was i think to me really interesting and then you go to utah where you know, everyone is Mormon and the culture is so intensified. And I don't know, for some reason, it in what in a, at a time when I was very active, it felt almost like almost like pointless to me to be around so many other Mormons. You know, it was mm-hmm. like it was like, what are what are we doing here? Who do we have to like? preach to or be good to this is all just like I don't know it felt like an amusement park almost that's interesting um and so uh, you know in your book queer or real queer America uh you went back to Provo and you talk about you know the changes that had happened in the decades since the, since you were there um you know Frankly, a majority of my family still lives in Utah, and um, I go back as infrequently as I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but I, I also have been amazed, like, in Circle, you know, the, the community center in Provo. And you talk about uh, groups like that that are changing the church from within. And, you know, I, I honestly wonder if that's possible. What do you think? I think it's an open question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was in Provo in the closet, it was 2006, 2007, and it did not strike me as the sort of place where I could be openly transgender. I, you know, all of my activities were in secret. And so when I went back in 2017 on that road trip to write Real Queer America, I was really shocked and moved by how much had changed in just that short time span, largely because of the vast amount of of youth who have 
who have come out um, and who have kind of insisted on acceptance from their Mormon parents. It's kind of this, you know, uh, tragic story and a happy story and that Utah has had just astronomical rates of LGBTQ youth homelessness and suicide. And uh, on the flip side of that, now we're starting to see more Mormon parents realize that accepting their LGBTQ children is literally a life or death issue. And that's, I think, led to groups like Encircle, um, you know, and, and more LGBTQ visibility in kind of deep Mormon areas of Utah more generally. So I was, I was astounded to find that. And I admit as someone who, you know, decided this isn't changing fast enough. I have, you know, doctrinal and intellectual issues with the church besides I'm getting out of here. As someone like that, it's sort of like, I sort of react with skepticism when someone tells me that they want to stick around or they want to see if they can push their bishop or try to change the culture or that kind of thing. And um, But having met, spoke to, interviewed, been in the homes of many people in this situation, I, I sort of learned to suspend that skepticism and and say, you know, to myself, like, this person's journey may eventually lead them out of the church, but they might not be ready yet, just like it took me, like, you know, a few years to kind of give up on the idea, or maybe they won't, and maybe them sticking around will be a good thing. I think ultimately, if the church wants to retain young members, they will have to change their policies around LGBTQ issues and women's issues. And their hand will just kind of be forced by a rising generation or risk, you know, further irrelevance. Like that's, that's blunt, but I think that's the, the gambit that they face going forward. Whether I have faith that that change will happen quickly, I mean, it could take decades, you know, right. look look at how long it took to change the priesthood policy in 1978 right. vis-a-vis the start of the civil rights movement, you know, if we, if we think that this is going to have similar timing, it could be like 2030 or 2040 before we see like full policy change. And it is, you, you know, you mentioned it is a generational change um, because there is so much more acceptance, you know, with younger people um, living in Texas, you know, for the last three years. I've also noticed a bit of a change um, living in the suburbs with my partner. You know, we we don't have the same, you know, kind of fear of going out or, you know, people realizing that we're a couple or, you know, things like that. Um, I think, you know, here we have the Baptist church, you know, mega church, a block from where we live. And, <laughs> you know, so it, the conservative evangelical religion aspect is very similar uh, to what it is in Utah. Um, and you, in your road, you know, your road trip writing Real Queer America, you you did come through Texas and you talk about, uh, a Baptist church in Waco um, that essentially became open and affirming to LGBTQ people. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what you know what you found out from 
the pastor in that process? Yeah, that was Pastor Kendall Ruffus, and um, she told me that her congregation had voted overwhelmingly, I think, you know, maybe all but five of her 180-some congregants had voted to become an LGBTQ-affirming congregation, and as a result, I believe, had faced some backlash from the Baptist governing body under which that uh, church is located, and then, you know, the congregation had to band together to fund student scholarships for this got kind of lost in that internal division uh, because of that backlash. And it, it was a really compelling story to me because as I wrote in the book, I was like, if you had told me that like one day I would be sitting in a Baptist church in Waco, Texas, I would ask you who had kidnapped me. Like, it, you know, <laughs> that sentence does not seem like a safe sentence for like an openly transgender person. And yet part of the reality that I was documenting in Real Queer America is that like that change is happening everywhere. You know, it's not just happening in liberal metropolises anymore. Mm -hmm. It's it's happening in places like Baptist churches in Waco, Texas. It's happening in in families and faith groups and in conservative suburbs. Like it's it's everywhere. Um, like you, you can't stop LGBTQ people from being born. And I think ultimately you can't stop us from, from coming out in today's reality. And, and so like that process is just going to happen everywhere and you can slow it down with religion or you can slow it down with conservatism, but you, you can't stop it. And so it, it shouldn't be a surprise to find that in, in a Baptist church in Waco, Texas, any more than it should be a surprise to that, you know, cultural change around LGBTQ issues happened in San Francisco and New York in the late 20th mm -hmm. century. Like, this is just, it's the next evolution of that history. Yeah, and uh, in your book, you quote um, icon Monica Roberts, who unfortunately passed away uh, this year or this week, uh, I didn't have the opportunity of meeting Monica. Um, but I, you know, if you could just, you know, talk a little bit about Monica, who she was and how continuing her legacy, uh, is so important. Yeah. Monica, I was devastated to learn of the news of her passing. She, to, me and many other transgender folks and the LGBTQ community at large was just this absolute pillar. I mean, single-handedly, she was, you know, writing amazing transgender content on her blog. And also what she became really known for was uh, correcting the misgendering and misnaming of transgender victims of violence in local media outlets and, and national media outlets for a really sustained period. You know, when you hear around November, Transgender Day of Remembrance comes out, media outlets start talking about the number of reported deaths of transgender women or transgender people in the U.S. over the last year. That tally was not possible without Monica because she was the one sifting through local media coverage where, you know, some local media outlet would be like, man in a dress found, right. you know, killed on the sidewalk. And 
Monica would say, well, you know, this is probably a transgender woman in our community. And she would go onto Facebook and, and see people who had talked about the loss of a transgender sister or transgender niece or something like that and connect the dots between the mm-hmm. case and, and then go public on her blog and say, you know, I'm sorry to report that the, you know, number has gone up by one, share that person's story. And she was just absolutely tireless in that work. And I had the privilege of profiling her last year. I just recently went back to look at the phone conversation. We spoke for about 90 minutes and it's just a joy to hear her talk again about her, her life and her activism. And it's tragic that it was cut, cut short. I mean, she, one of the last things she told me in that interview was that, you know, she sees the transgender rights movement as a relay race with a torch and that she has been privileged to carry the torch. But she said, when it's, when it's time for me to pass it on, I'm going to just pass it on down to the next generation of trans people. And the goal is to never let the flame go out. And, um, you know, that, that to me is one of the more comforting sentiments I can take away at this moment is that she, she did want to pass the torch. Um, I don't think she should have had to do it so soon or under the tragic circumstances of what's reported to be a hit and run, which breaks my heart. But, um, you know, here, here we are. And I think the best thing that we could do to honor Monica is to just carry her legacy forward. Take the torch from her. Yeah. And I, I saw on her Facebook page, you know, last week, I think it was, she posted, you know, about voting early, you know, Texas early voting starts on Tuesday and how excited she was to vote. Um, but it's tragic that she didn't get that opportunity, but it's a reminder, you know, that we all need to, we all need to vote in the election. Um, and, you know, we have the opportunity to do so in, in Monica's honor. Yeah, she was so passionate about changing how Texas looked on the electoral map. And she was passionate about, you know, democratic politics. I mean, one of the reasons I interviewed her for Real Queer America was she was very vocal about, um, hang on one second, my wife's alarm is going off. Uh, she was very vocal about changing Texas. She, she said, you know, like, yeah, a fair number of friends or, you know, used to move to New York or San Francisco or L.A., but she's like, increasingly the people I know are just moving to like Austin or Houston or San Antonio. You're, they're staying mm-hmm. in Texas. They're just kind of going to a population center in Texas to get access to LGBTQ community. Um, and, and so she was very passionate about kind of the core ethos of real queer America, which is that, you know, LGBTQ people are transforming the red states where they are instead of going all the way to the coasts anymore. Right. We, we all can't leave the red states. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that if we do that, you know, that you speak about it in the book also, you know, it kind of leaves a void and it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't advance our equality or our cause because people don't have, you know, exposure to or get to know LGBTQ people. Um, 
you know, in your book, you spent a lot of time in the South, you know, between Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, um, and Texas. How do you think that, how, how is that part of the country different from say, you know, the West Provo, um, you know, even Arizona is pretty conservative, uh, in certain aspects, um, Idaho, the, you know, the, the mountain West, how is the South different than the mountain West? Do you think? Mm. Uh, you know, the Mountain West is sort of like dominated by like Mormon and like newer evangelical churches mm-hmm. and it's conservatism and uh, it's it's a different bag in the South. The conservatism is 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 deeper and deeper rooted and, and older and, you know, you're you're in a landscape determined by mega churches and then the Southern Baptist church and Bible belt evangelical churches that can be pretty hardcore in their, um, in their teachings and practices. And, and so, yeah, the South is a different bag culturally. Um, but to me, it's also a really beautiful and delightful part of the country. I lived in Atlanta for five years and, um, made my own chosen family of friends in Johnson City, Tennessee, just like over the Smokies from Atlanta. And I, for the book, traveled in Mississippi. I've since had the opportunity to do a little bit of travel in Alabama. Like, I, I love this part of the country. I love culturally the the gosh, like all of it, you know, the natural beauty of the South, the food, the, the culture, the pace of life, the, um, you know, the hospitality, even when it, even when it can feel hypocritical Mm -hmm. at times, right? Like there's, there's something about it that resonates deeply with my soul. Um, at the same time, you know, it's one of the harshest backdrops in the country, to be LGBTQ in terms of your legal protections and options, in terms of um, you know a lot of people's stories of family recognition, or you know you have you have mid-sized cities in the U.S. South still where people are like really kind of afraid to hold hands with the same-sex mm-hmm. partner, um, but like. To me, these parts of the country, they, they're not, you know, if LGBTQ people have to abandon them, I think that's sad because mm-hmm. they're, they're ours as much as anybody else's, you know, and that's one of the messages of that book, which is like queerness is an American phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon, but it also has American hints and, and hues to it. And we, we don't we shouldn't have to like abandon the places that we like or love just because of who we are yeah and you know it goes back to telling our stories and you know getting to know people who otherwise wouldn't know an lgbtq person you know and showing showing them that we're just like them <laughs> you know we're not we're not scary we're not uh you know as as the visibility increases, you know, I think that there's more of an opportunity for people within our community to, uh, to live more authentically and, and to live, you know, 
by being out and you know true to who they are which is why i think national coming out day is so important and um you know i think that it gives us all the opportunity to just kind of reaffirm that we're here we're in this we're in this together we're not going anywhere <laughs> yeah coming out is i think the number one way people can affect change i don't th- think that means people should feel pressured to do it if it's not safe for them to do so currently but like when when it is safe when it will challenge or stress you a little bit to do it then i think that's the that's the time and that's the number one way you can keep changing the culture of the United States around LGBTQ issues. You know, I think, I think you see a lot of LGBTQ change in the 20th century propelled by uh, riots and marches and parades and then these Mm -hmm. very loud public demonstrations of visibility that are, I think, still important to our community culturally still have their place. Protesting, I think, is still like an important tool in the toolbox for justice. But I think what's happening in the LGBTQ community lately, like at least what I've observed over the course of my career as a reporter and writing the book, is like what's fueling change is literally people coming out and then just kind of having conversations with their family or their their faith group or their friends about it for like a period of five to ten years Mm -hmm. you know it's it's slow it's gradual it's microscopic it's something you can only really ever like fully trace the effects of in macro um but it's happening at this amazing little like granular level it's like this cells of the body changing you know it's like Mm -hmm. it's this incredible thing it is. And, you know, I think progress can feel slow, especially when you're the, you know, in the marginalized community. Um, and, you know, I think we've felt the last four years, <laughs> you know, have been kind of a, a step back in a lot of ways. Um, but that's not unique to our movement, I don't think. Um, what do you think about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a backlash, right? Um, Politically, anti-LGBT groups are not super happy that Obergefell Mm -hmm. got handed down by the Supreme Court in 2015, making same-sex marriage the law of the land nationwide. And I'm sure they're not that thrilled about the Bostock Supreme Court ruling that gives employment protections to uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender folks nationwide. Right. So, yeah, you, you see in many rights movements advances followed by backlash, followed by more advances, followed mm-hmm. by weakening backlash. And it's this seesaw that I think, you know, it's not inevitable that it wasn't inevitable as we know now that LGBTQ rights were going to be better in 2020 than they were in 2016. Mm-hmm. There's certain ways in which that's, that's true uh, in a certain state or local level, or even with these Supreme court rulings. But I think generally we can all agree the climate has shifted pretty dramatically from the end of the Obama presidency to right. three and however many months into the Trump presidency. Um, so yeah, it's it's not going to be a straight line. It's not even going to be a steadily upward trending line on a line graph. But I, I I think 
the ultimate destination is is full acceptance and um and there's there's no way to really stop that because you know it's like a horror movie queerness is always going to keep bubbling up the call is coming from inside the house like you you can't yeah Yeah. well you know i i think that you know especially your your book real queer america um is really important because it does tell the stories it does introduce um you know people to uh beliefs or you know people who they otherwise would not you know be interacting with and then you know just m to wtf was just such a it's what i needed this week (laughs) the stories you know are incredibly personal uh but the way that you you know your voice kind of puts puts them in it with a sense of humor but then also you know gets down in the the nitty-gritty of what it is what it is to transition really humanizes it. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I, I know it, it's probably difficult to, you know, put that out there and kind of feel that vulnerable. Mm, I'm well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, mostly I just wanted it to make people laugh and make people smile. And if it had the knock on effect of like humanizing parts of transgender experience or, you know, shining a light or sort of, you know, popping some sort of tension around like discussing our our lives uh then then I'm happy I mean I I wrote it with the intention of saying like I've had to tell my story in this very like prepackaged like sanitized point a to point b kind of way before and in a way that many trans people can relate to, because we want to tell a nice, pretty, neat story about mm-hmm. our lives or our experiences in a bid for rights and equality. And that's often what the mainstream culture wants. They want you to be like, I was, you know, a caterpillar, and then I became a beautiful right. butterfly, and now my soul is just, you know, like they they want that kind of nice, simple teleological narrative. And for me, the book was... M to WTF was a way to say, like, I, I think, I think there's enough transgender acceptance now. And obviously not as much as I would want, but we've got enough of a foot in the door that maybe we can start to tell a more complicated story and maybe we can have fun and laugh together. Right. Uh, so long as transgender humanity isn't the butt of the joke. So it was just an effort to, to, tell my story in an irreverent and and raucous sort of way that didn't feel the need to have to like i don't know check off all these boxes or or play it safe right and none of our stories are you know as clean or you know point a to point b as (laughs) they're presented in you know a rom-com that you have an hour and a half to tell a story (laughs) you know none of our lives are are that wrapped up in a pretty box um and you mentioned how cathartic it was uh, to to write it, um, you know, for me, doing this podcast has been a, a lot of kind of that cathartic releasing of the Mormon upbringing and, you know, kind of embracing uh, me, myself as a gay man and being able to tell our stories. Um, how, you know, how was the book cathartic? And in what aspect of, 
of your story did you feel that was necessary? Mm. You know, I have written a relationship memoir, but that kind of starts like after I've already come out. And Real Queer America had uh, memoir elements to it and sort of told uh, brushstrokes of my story, but still, um, you know, stayed pretty, I wouldn't say surface level, but just a little selective in parts of my story I was telling because I, I wanted my story to be threaded through it enough for people to have background on me and who I was, but I didn't want to be like the sole focus of that book. You know, I interviewed dozens of LGBTQ people across mm -hmm. seven or eight states for that book. And I wanted, I wanted their stories to be the spotlight. And so for me, the things I had been avoiding talking about in my writing were things like more details about growing up Mormon or sh the shame and embarrassment of, of childhood or teenage years. Um, deciding to like really be a hardcore Mormon for a little while, um, you know, coming out in the very early, like embarrassing experiences of coming out, like a lot of things that were just kind of like a splinter in my finger that like I needed to kind of pull out, you know, and, and comedy for me was the way to kind of like blunt the like pain of like ripping out that deep splinter. I think it was a way to take those experiences and kind of like, you know, look at them from a different perspective that allowed me to externalize and process them and kind of get them out from kind of sticking painfully in my heart, like little burrs and bristles, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was very personal, but it was also, um, I think something that a lot of people can relate to, you know, various aspects of your story. So, um, I, I highly recommend anybody, uh, everybody, uh, go to audible and listen to M to WTF 26 of the funniest moments from my transgender journey. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was very enjoyable and, you know, I would like to end it on a high note. I know that you're a big Seattle Storm fan, so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. For title number four. Yeah, I joke in MWTF that the true endpoint of my transition wasn't male to female, but male to WNBA season ticket holder. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have become a stereotype. My wife and I go to WNBA games, and now we have a little, a little cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, uh, it's, it's all come full circle. It's all happened. <laughs> and I, I think it's a, a circle that a lot of people can relate to. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with me. And, uh, it was a pleasure to, excuse me, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me. This was a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nathan Out Loud. I especially want to thank Samantha Allen for joining me and for sharing her story. Be sure to check out her new Audible original, M to WTF, 26 of the funniest moments from my transgender journey. I also recommend Real Queer America, LGBT stories from red states. You can learn more about Samantha's work on her website at samanthaleeallen.com, and I'll post to that in the show notes. As I finish this episode, there are just 10 days left until the U.S. election. 
If you have not yet voted, be sure to come up with a plan right away by going to vote.org. If you are an eligible voter, between early voting, absentee or mail-in voting, and safe options to vote on November 3rd, there is no excuse not to participate and to make sure that your voice is heard. Again, go to vote.org to find all of the information that you need to vote. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Nathan Out Loud. If you have any feedback, want to share your story, or just want to say hello, email me at comments at nathanoutloud.com or call the Nathan Out Loud listener line at 802-32-BE-OUT. That's 802-322-3688. You can also follow me on Twitter at Nathan Out Loud and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Nathan Out Loud fans. You can also find the show on Instagram at Nathan.OutLoud. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll talk to you soon on the next episode of Nathan Out Loud. Until then, come out, be out, live out loud. Live out loud.